team, welcome back to the 2022 and 2022 challenge. My name's Craig, I'm your host for the podcast, and today we chat with Stuart Dixon from the Yorkshire Rugby Academy. Stuart, local guy, uh, doing great things for the community, working with the next tier of players who are wanting to venture into elite rugby, and we cover topics from mindful, mindfulness, um, the graduation from youth through to premiership rugby. We also talk about what's going on in club rugby, school rugby as well, and how COVID has impacted the offering for different clubs around our local area in Yorkshire. I hope you enjoy it, as ever. If you do, please uh, share it with friends, I'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't, I'd really appreciate if you could donate to the two charities that I am running the podcast for, Head for Change and Brave Mind, who are doing fantastic work out in the community. If you visit the link in the bio, you'll see what I'm up to with the 2022 and 2022 challenge. I'm on the down home straight, downhill straight, sorry, after walking 1,011 k's uh, in the first half of the year, I now have to do that again um, through to December to complete the challenge. And I've raised over 1,011 pounds for the two charities. Now I'm doing that for the second half of the year. Please support me, I'd really appreciate it. And let's get on with the show. Excellent. Hey Stuart, thanks for uh, joining us on the 2022 and 2022 Challenge. I uh, really appreciate your time. Um, how's things going at uh, Yorkshire Rugby Academy? Yeah, well, f- firstly, thanks for having me on, Craig, and um, apologies to anybody who watches this about the, the croakiness. But uh, yeah, things are good in Yorkshire. Um, yeah. It's been it's been a, a good challenge this year, actually, because we, we did some stuff last year. We were looking in terms of the pandemic that we we got to play some rugby as part of the pathway. But sort of this year, having everybody back um, provides a different challenge again. But it's um, it's been really good. We've had good access to a wide group of players. And uh, yeah, we've had a, a long season. We kind of started back in July trying to identify a new group and sort of finished last weekend in April. Um, and now we're just sort of in the off-season review and, and planning stage. So So yeah, it's gone really well. That's brilliant. So, how many how many um, lads, well, and well, how many players through the age groups are involved then? Yeah. So we, um, I guess, for the for the broader sense of the pathway, it starts with the DPP from from under fourteens, and that goes through to under sixteens. So there'd be around one hundred and fifty kids at each age group in that, which is a the kind of introduction to to development. Um, we start the academy journey, if you like, under 16s. So this year we've had around 45 lads that have, have taken part in that programme. So they started in the new year in January, um, trained for around six to eight weeks and then had three or four playing opportunities against other academies and other groups. Um, in terms of the under 18s, the, the pathway started way back in the summer where we, we had to identify pretty much an entire new cohort of players. So we worked with around 250 lads across under 17s and 18s in the summer. Um, we then saw 150 of them play in Crikey, would have been the back end of June. And then from that point, we identified a working group of about 40. And then with form and injuries and everything else that goes with that, that probably went up to about 50 before Christmas. Um, we then played the Academy League with the under-18s group, and once that finished, we then go into a specific under-17s block, so that opened the door again to about another 25 lads. So kind of, a, I guess over the course of the year, the academy's worked with well over kind of 100 kids from under-16 to under-18. That's fantastic, man. Um, in terms of, so I was going to ask around pathways after 18s, um, where, do, um, where does the academy link up to then? Do you work with the different um, bigger clubs, north and south? Yeah, so we, um, I guess to explain our, our model, so we're, we're one of 14 uh, England rugby academies in the country, 
but we're the only one who's not aligned to a professional club. So yeah. since um, Yorkshire Carnegie ceased to exist, we've, we kind of reopened as an independent under 18 academy. So we, we work hard with the other 13 academies to, to try and get our, our lads placed there. There's lots of political stuff that we probably can't get into today as to why that's difficult. But um, for the very best players, that would be uh, option A, that we can get them into a senior academy with another club. Um, but realistically, as it stands at the moment, we, we kind of support the lads into what the best next steps are, if that's university or if that's um, working uh, like an apprenticeship type thing. So it's, um, it's very much about trying to work out what the individual wants and needs uh, and trying to support and making the best decision. Uh, so an example might be that they're, they're dead keen on doing a certain course at university, but the very best university might not have a rugby programme. Yeah. So you've then got to kind of make a decision around, well, do you go to the next best university, but it has a good rugby programme and that's the best fit overall? Um, or for a lot of lads, particularly after the last couple of years, they're, they're probably just burnt out with education and they're just looking to get into a workplace. So can we find a really you know, kind of good level club that suits them and, and link it to maybe some kind of uh, apprenticeship or vocational type qualification. And how open are the clubs like for apprenticeships and the like uh, to welcome it? To, I'm supposing good talent's always going to be snapped up where, wherever the opportunity arises, but are the clubs open to sort of linking up with new and upcoming players? Yeah, so it's, um, it's something that we're looking to explore and, and get better connections with. There's, we know that there's certain clubs that really try hard to get that, and that might be their point of difference in terms of recruiting players. Um, other clubs perhaps have, have not kind of thought about it, um, particularly around that kind of school leaver age. They're, they're sort of probably thinking about how do we get students who are finishing university to come back in? Yeah. Whereas, you know, if, if you get a, a player who's sort of just turned 18 and invest some time and, and support them, then you potentially got a player then for, for the rest of their career. So it's... Um, it's someone we're definitely looking to explore. We're, we're lucky we partner with a company called Global Bridge who provides like an education and vocational platform. So the best way to describe it, I guess, would be uh, like a LinkedIn for, for education. So the, the students can create a profile, put things like video clips on of them playing for the academy, um, let universities know kind of what their expected grades are and any other bits that they might do that makes them stand out from other candidates. So things like Duke of Edinburgh, things like a musician or, or stuff like that. So then they can create a profile, share that with universities and or businesses and, and look at what kind of the next best fit is. That's brilliant. That's a great concept. Um, in terms of um, sort of support for that, you, you'll obviously get, a, you're starting with 250 odd players um, and there's a lot of, well, there's over half. There's a lot of disappointment. In terms of sort of next steps to them, is it, do they understand what other opportunities are out there or how they can fit back into the pathway potentially further down throughout the year? Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, one of the, the, the key strengths of, of this programme is the fact that we're, we're just linked with one county, whereas every other academy has got to manage kind of maybe two or three different counties. So an example in, in Newcastle would be they work with Cumbria, Durham and Northumberland. Yeah. So to kind of align the whole region is really difficult. Whereas with Yorkshire, we work really closely with the county age group team. So under 17, under 18, there, there is a county pathway as well. So when we're trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, when we're explaining to the lads that at this point in time, you're not ready yet for, for the academy setup, what we will do and what we do commit to is, is being more visible in clubs and schools and watching games. So certainly in the first part of last season through September and the back end of October, we were out watching games on a Saturday and Sunday just to make sure that those lads that were either in with us were, were getting some feedback on, on how they were developing and, and lads that might not quite be ready to be able to give them some feedback as to, to why at this moment in time, there's somebody ahead of them in the pecking order. Um, and then we, you know, like I said, we work really hard with the county. So we provide them with, from those 250 lads, we provide them with good information of where we felt they were. And a lot of them that get invited to the county under 18 assessments. And again, that's probably another cohort of, of lads outside of the academy. So across Yorkshire, at specifically year 13 under 18, there's probably 65 lads who've got an opportunity to, to either pull on an academy jersey or a county jersey. Um, 
And now we're just in the, the phase of the under 17 specific county programme. So again, we may have worked with 40 lads in our specific block, but at the weekend there were sort of 50 odd lads who who'd not been involved in the academy who were getting an opportunity to, to get selected for Yorkshire. So we try and keep the you know the pathway as wide <clears throat> as possible for as long as possible and fully appreciating that uh, whether you do it with the best intentions, somebody getting told they're not good enough, that's what they're hearing. And what we're trying to say is that you're not quite ready and, and there's a big difference between the messages, but you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, you're just hearing, I'm not good enough, and yeah. that's disappointing. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of selecting, is selection, is selection based around talent at that time or potential? So this is um, this is probably where there, there is a slight difference between the county teams and the academy. So a county team may may have preference for um, ability in that window. So who who potentially is the best best prop, the best scrum half to to play the game. Whereas our remit in the academy is to try and provide players certainly uh, for the the elite end of the game around professional. And, and that might be where we look at maybe a positional transfer or we look at some key characteristics of a player. So as of right now, they're physically sort of ready to play professional rugby in their position, but they've got some deficiencies around some skill set. But we, we would then think longer term. So we're looking at this 17, 18 year old and where they could get to at 22. And obviously that's a different outcome to maybe what the, the county teams want and need when they've got three games in the next three weeks. Yeah. They need to win or that they're looking to win. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's let's be honest, it's it's become a bit of a dirty word, but I'm I'm yet to coach a player who doesn't go on the pitch wanting to win. And we should definitely encourage that. Yeah. Um yeah and yes there is a bit around development, but Crikey, you want to go out there and give the best uh, version of yourself and, and try your hardest. Yeah, I think everybody would, you know, we're all playing to, well, that's, the outcome's going to be the outcome, but, you know, we, we always want to have the outcome in in our favour as opposed to, you know, coming away thinking that it was close, but we didn't, and, it, and that's okay. Um, Long-term vision for for the academy, um, where, where do you see it going? I know it's in its infancy, and I know, and it's yeah, yeah. probably one of the best things that's happened in the county for rugby. Um, what does the next five, ten years look like? So, <laughs> sitting right here, right now, that that's a question that that I can't answer, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So, the the academy licenses uh, finish at the end of the 23-24 season. Okay. So, as as of right now, we we can't guarantee what the landscape would look like. Um, so, the, there's a couple of options. It may be that we're doing such a good job, and that's our intention that it would be impossible to kind of close a model down. But beyond beyond that, it may be that, that Premier Rugby decides they're quite happy with the 13 academies and Yorkshire gets kind of carved up and distributed by the three closest academies. So we obviously don't want that. Yeah. Um, and, and we're passionate about, you know, at each age we've got 1,500 kids playing the game and they, they need a hub within Yorkshire to develop them and develop their potential. So... Um, next year is our third season and we kind of <clears throat> want to, in terms of a staff, we're kind of keen that that's, that's where people can really start to judge us because the pathways are fully open. We've, we've got more resource in place now. So we started 18 months ago with two full-time members of staff. And, and as of today, we've got five members of staff so we can support players more in terms of their environments. Um, we've got a good cohort of, under 17s pushing up to next year and the 16s coming through look like they've got some great potential. So that's where you can kind of start to judge as I feel fairly compared to other academies. Um, but like I say, we can only do what we can do and, and be the best that we can be. And hopefully that's enough that uh, somebody decides it's worthwhile carrying on with. Yeah, exactly. In terms of um, talent and pathways into the professional game, um, how many of the sort of current cohort at the top end of the academy, do you feel are in a position to move up? That's a big question. I'm not, um, I won't, and I won't ask for specifics, but no, obviously no. you'd think, actually, there's potential there. You know, if they get the right opportunity, they could be very lucky. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's really interesting that sort of last, last year's cohort that we worked with, probably as a group had slightly higher 
ability levels than, than this year's current crop of under 18s that have left. But because of the situation we were in, um, nobody kind of really knew exactly what to do in terms of how we approach players. So a lot of those guys have, have gone to book Super Rugby Universities and, and gone really well and managed to play first team. So they're definitely going to be on people's radar and I wouldn't be surprised if sort of a few of them come through and, and follow that kind of Alex Dombrand um, model where they get picked up in their third or fourth year at university. Um, from this year, we had we had two or three guys that, that on the back of finals day were sort of uh, talked to by other clubs, but because of um, their age, and I, I didn't want to get in, into this, but certainly when a player turns 18, if, if they were signed by another premiership club, they're, they're not what's called homegrown. So they would have to sit on the wider salary cap rather than being in an, an academy. Yeah. So with the salary cap being reduced at premiership, that obviously constrains a lot of decisions. And, and if I'm a, a senior director of rugby and I've lost two million quid on my salary cap, am I going to take a gamble on an 18-year-old kid from Yorkshire or do I invest that money in, in somebody that's 23, 24 and got a bit of a track record? So... Again, I wouldn't be surprised if if two or three years down the line some of these guys do push on. Um, but then when we drop down to the next age group, there's there's certainly potential for two or three of those lads to get picked up, certainly because of their ages, because they're quite young. So they've got a long time to be seen and be developed. Um, but more importantly, that like their ability levels are so high. So they've been involved with the England camp recently and we're pretty hopeful some will go on the South African tour in the summer. So that's great credit to them and the way they've been developed. We've only seen them for eight months and they've certainly played a lot of rugby and seen a lot of coaches before they came to us. Oh, it's good. You know, it's what you want. You you want to understand that uh, there's potential out there. You want to understand if um, you give them sort of the right support along the way that there's a real future for them if they decide to if they decide to go down that path. It's, it sounds really exciting. Um, in terms of... So let's get into the... the um, the mental health stuff and and the concussion side of things. Obviously, you've you've played the game for many many years before moving transitioning into the position where you are now. Um, what was your playing history like, and did you suffer from concussions whilst you were playing, being a ex front rower? Ex front rower, come on, I was a I was a fat a fat centre. Um, so so yeah, I mean, crikey. Look, I played uh, at my local club at Bruffin and Bingley till till I was 19 and then sort of went the old fashioned method to the to the top by kind of moving up through the league. So I, I moved on to Harrogate, who were in the, the national leagues at the time. Then I was fortunate to get a, a professional professional. I got paid to play. We definitely weren't professional because nobody knew what that meant back then. But um, I was paid to play for a couple of years at, at Wakefield when they existed as a, a small number of, of full timers there. And on the back of some some decent performances, surrounded by some good players, I was fortunate enough to get signed by Rotherham when they went to the Premiership in, in 2000. Um, and I had three good years there, but unfortunately uh, suffered an injury, which meant that they had, kind of had to release me. So there'll probably be some stuff in there we could unpick around mental health. But to, to get to your point around concussion, um, I guess people didn't really understand it back then. So there are definitely times I can remember can remember clearly, and it's probably ironic that I can remember it clearly, but I uh, I was knocked out playing for the Yorkshire under-21s, as it was then. Um, so the situation was I'd, I'd heard my opposite number and he was wanting the ball quickly, so I gambled that the fly-half was going to pass it to him and I charged out the line and kind of hit him, but got just his hip right on the yeah. side of my head. And kind of the next thing I know, I'm... Sort of talking to the physio and and being told I need to leave the field. Um, so a I was definitely concussed because I was I was out for a, a few seconds, um, but there was nothing around the protocols back then. So it was back to training Tuesday night and play for the club the weekend after. Because um, I guess I mean that's that's just what we knew. Um, but kind of as we got towards towards the end, so I finished playing professionally in in two thousand and three. And there was certainly some more awareness of, of concussion and the, the potential kind of longer term effects starting to come through. Um, so, yeah, you, you took a little bit 
more time. There was still nothing official in place like we have now in terms of the return to play, but there was certainly a, a check from the physio after the weekend. How are you feeling? Just go steady in training today. If you you know if you feel dizzy at all, make sure you, you kind of pull out. But um, obviously, I worked for for England rugby for a long time as well, so I was kind of part of the initial rollout of the head case education stuff. Okay, yeah. and it was it was massive because I, I don't know if you've you've seen them. You remember the like the key fobs and they had the symptoms on the on the wee key fob there, and um, kind of jokingly, and it's definitely not a jokey subject but kind of read through and go well I, I feel like that most days yeah. particularly on a Sunday I've definitely got a headache and there's probably some some nausea whether that's due to the beers the night before or whether that's um, concussion but trying to help and upskill coaches around particularly age grade that recognise and remove protocol and there was certainly a time where there was this confusion around head injury assessments and, and where they fit into the grand scheme of things and so yeah, I guess that brings us up today, where where hopefully it's it's much more out there, much more aware, particularly in the junior age grade. That like the best thing to do is just, if in doubt, bring them off. Bring them off, and you know, and they miss twenty minutes of rugby that day. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot to preserve their kind of health longer term. Yeah, I remember when I finished playing, um, I'd got knocked out three times that season, and um, I was having a great season, uh, and then I thought. And it's funny you should say you can remember the instances when you get knocked out. You know, obviously that that can impact things further down the line. But I remember you know, getting knocked out, and then the, the the opposition that I was marking he was playing in a Ramfurly Shield match the next weekend. I thought, no, <laughs> it's just crazy. But yeah. you know, is the so in terms of uh, acceptance by parents. I won't, I won't touch on coaches because coaches have gone through, but parents' understanding of how concussion works, is, are we at a better place now than we were a couple of two, three, four, five years ago? Yeah, I'd like to think so. I, I, certainly in, in, in our context in the academy, I've got a, a great head physio who who drives that kind of education piece. So we'd um, it's, it's not mandated, but we certainly encourage parents to undertake the head case online learning. Um, on the England rugby website, the players all have mandatory concussion training in terms of signs and symptoms. So they can they can support their peers if because they're right in the action. So they might notice something and then get a message to the sidelines, you know, that uh, so-and-so's just took a bit of a knock and he's, he's a bit dazed. Um, but certainly around the return to play protocols where we're really key and we understand it's only a small number of parents that, that we're working with, but if they can then support and educate some of their their fellow parents on the sidelines back at club and school, then yeah. that's got to be good for the game. But the whole the whole piece about sort of the the markers when you can return to play, I think probably needs some more support. Because at the moment they kind of get the timelines. It's yeah, 23 days before they can play again, but it's it's more than that. And those kind of stages of return um are really key. So like all our players would get signed off by a by a our club doctor or their own GP before they can return to contact, which is the final mark before they can play. But in a lot of environments, they won't have access to that or they might not understand that. And they'll just go, it happened on X, yeah. 23 Got days, to. you can play again. Yeah. Um, so, and, and in the vast majority of cases, that's that's enough time for them to recover and um, fingers crossed, you know, they're, they're safe to play. But I don't know what, exactly the best mechanism is because we certainly found with GPs and it is absolutely no disrespect to them but they're they're kind of reluctant to say um, yes I am happy for you to go out play a contact sport and potentially get your head injured again because of other things that happen down the line in our society around where there's blame there's a claim yeah so exactly. it's, a, it's a bit of a sticky situation at the moment so best practice is go see your GP and don't return to contact until that's happened. But the reality is getting an appointment can take a long time and getting a doctor who would sign a piece of paper saying, yeah, I'm really happy for you to potentially get your head hit again in, in the next game that you play is, is pretty tough. Yeah, I know that when um, Kieran was had his uh, head knock, he was out for five months and it, we, did, we just went with, well, he just went with how his body was feeling yeah. and getting that fog to lift 
would go sometimes and then come back and you know it was, it was going through GCSEs at the same time as well so it was a, it was a bit of a weird time in terms of um so we'll, let's jump back to playing days then being out with injury and obviously that can happen with the young ones with concussion um yeah and spending that time off the field and sort of being on your own um sort of mental health or mental well-being can start to sort of deteriorate did you experience any of that whilst you were playing so i think um so when i got my my kind of serious injury so i snapped my achilles uh, when i was at, at rotherham and so that's going to be a long-term kind of a, you know time out of the game and sat with the physio and said look these are the best case situations in terms of uh, you you getting back on the pitch um, but because we're in a professional environment, there was all there was always somebody broken, some yeah. more severely than others. So there was thankfully a bit of a kind of a peer group to work alongside. So I remember there was a there was a guy I was working with who'd come back from an e reconstruction and had me Achilles rebuilt, and, and we'd get through the the daily grind of the rehab stuff, which is it's pretty dull and it's pretty uh, mind numbing, and then kind of on the back of it. <laughs> You look back now, it's ridiculous. But we, we decided that we'd, we'd try and get to the point where we could bench 150 kilos. So after we finished our rehab, we'd then go into kind of muscle and fitness mode and and put on like a ripped lumberjack shirt and, and hit the bench and hit the dumbbells. And I guess we probably just needed that to just to keep ourselves a little bit sane because you were going to matches and you're watching your mates do stuff that you really wanted to do. And then you sat in team reviews and you're going, crikey, I'd love to be out there and... Even making the mistakes that they're making, I'd love to have a chance to do it because we're we're not going to do that for a few months. But I was, yeah, really fortunate being in that full time environment. There's always somebody around. Um, whereas I get in in the kind of amateur club game that it has a massive knock on effect. You, if you can't work, particularly if you're self employed, you know that can have a, a real big influence on your quality of life, financially yeah. and emotionally. And, and I've definitely seen it with with lads that I've coached in in that kind of environment where they really do start to struggle. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, in terms of, so thinking back now, is there anything, obviously you were out for a while. If you had somebody in that same position now, uh, and I'm thinking around like team reviews, how could you include those guys who are sitting on the bench and sort of not being involved in anything? Because they're the eyes and ears that are out there watching every weekend. You know, do you think there's yeah. an opportunity to use those guys to sort of bring forward any feedback, et cetera, to just try and make them feel sort of better included? Yeah, I think um, the way the kind of whole landscape around coach development's gone over the last few years and, and that concept of being really player-centred has massively helped, whereas in the past it was almost like, I won't say dictatorship, but like the coach was always the leader and what they said went, whereas now it's much more kind of open to ideas and other stuff around... Ancelotti recently, there's the picture of him talking to his senior players about what they would do in the um, the game against Man City. Yeah. So there's much more kind of openness around getting some support. And if we can be really proactive and and explicit about those injured players and keeping them involved, that's that's key. We've had a lad this year that um, injured his hamstring in the early part of the season, went through a good, robust rehab plan, came back, hit all the markers, First game back, 10 minutes in, same injury, went again, but more severe, which pretty much ended his season. So to make sure that he um, he still felt part of the group, he got, yes, he had to do his rehab and that was the most important thing. But then when he came out, he had specific tasks around the group, um, whether that be, I mean, you've coached 16, 17 year olds yourself, they're not very organised. So he, he'd be the one who'd be like, right, you need to get your bibs on, you need to jog, blah, 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 and be that kind of energy for the group. Um, we were really fortunate as well that, one of the Newcastle Falcons players had gone through a similar kind of run and, and the club were really open and they put the two players in touch. So we've got a 16, 17-year-old kid speaking to a, a full-time professional yeah. who had been through and, and experienced those kind of dark times where you just think this is never going to end. Um, and then on the back of it, and I, and I guess this is really good self-awareness by, by the lad. He's gone, look, I, I think I could have a real passion for this, this idea of sports psychology. So he's now exploring what that might look like educationally when he finishes his A-levels. So we put him in touch with um, the guy that used to do some of the sports psych stuff at Carnegie. Yep. So they, they've spoken about 
what the pathway looks like educationally, what the best courses are and, um, and where he is now. So, yeah, I think to kind of sum it up, it's, it's really important that it's, it's individual and, and some individuals just want to be away from it and that's, that's their choice. And having that kind of real openness to say, we're here for you when you need us. And if there's any way we can support you, that's what we'd love to do. Yeah, do you have somebody doing um, like player development as, as a role or is it just um, do you share responsibility across the group? Yeah, it's pretty much across, um, and I say we've got five full-time staff, but there's there's four or five guys that are sort of part-time coaches as well. Yeah. So we share we share all that stuff around the group. So when the withers, we'd have a, a group of players that we'd be closer to um, and understand a little bit more. Uh, we we definitely spend a lot of time as a, a cross-disciplinary team. So that the physios, S and C, and the coaches talk together about where players are at, what's going on. So even things such as we're not going to bring them into training tonight because they've got a massive workload at school. They've got exams coming up and and letting the player and the parents know that that's okay. And just there'd be a, obviously in the back of the mind thinking there's some kind of black mark against the name that I didn't go training. So they think I'm not committed and, and things like that. But we just go, look, this is the most important thing for you right now is the exams or this weekend's Yorkshire Cup final for your club is the most important game this week. So you need to train there and not come to us. And, and we're all right with that. Um, so I think doing all we can to kind of allay those fears that um, not coming to every academy session in whatever state you're in is the most important thing. But yeah. but also being there if you need us um, to have a chat about things. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a big call because a lot of players won't understand that. Um, you know, there's they think if I'm not going to be there, I'm going to miss out. Um, in terms of sort of players self-talk, can you tell when somebody's struggling or especially when you've been, they've been with you for a while and how do you help them overcome that or work through those issues? Yeah, I guess um, when you do spend a lot of time with them, you get to kind of use to their sort of base level of, of emotion or base level of sort of how they deal with things. And, and sometimes there's just a, a little trigger that, you know, Jimmy over there is just a little bit quieter than he normally is. He's normally one of the bubbly lads and he looks a bit quieter and just kind of pick an opportune moment. It's gauging, I guess, when the best time is. You probably don't want to call them out in a group and just say, you know, what's going on with you? You look a bit quiet tonight and there's 29 other sets of eyes just turn and look at you and that's probably not the best thing. So just maybe walk between the gym and the pitch or yeah. as we're walking between practices, just goes everything all right, just checking in. And it might be... I've just had a couple of bad nights sleep and I'm just feeling a bit flat. That's fine. Or there might be some other stuff out there. And I think it's really good when they get to a point where they can, they can express themselves. So we had a lad who um, just had some stuff going on, nothing thankfully serious, but he had some, some medical bits going on and he was just waiting for the results of some tests. And he'd, he'd been the day before for the test. And so that next 48 hours, he was just a little bit, not worried that there was anything really sinister going on, but just wanted to know what, what was uh, happening in his world so they could, he could fix it and get on. And then obviously that impacted him at the training session. So that was fine. And we just said, and it, he said, I really want to be here because I just want to rugby's my way of escaping it. So I don't yeah. want to not do the session, but I might just be a bit quiet or I might not be quiet on it. And that, again, that's, that's absolutely cool. It's fine. Yeah. It's a big call for, for a young man to, to say that. And, you know, I'm in this position. I just want to be here. It's really good for me. When, yeah. when you think actually you could, being away from it could be good for you as well, but for them sometimes it's their release. Um, do the guys, do you buddy the guys up so they sort of can keep in contact with each other and keep, you know, sort of seeing finger on the pulse how they're feeling, etc. Yeah, and it's, that's probably something that's um, going to come out of the review. So we, we've um, done a lot of work on some of the psychosocial characteristic stuff. So these, this idea of um, how to spot players beyond the technical tactical piece. And, and one of the, the bits, so we're, we're supported by uh, a lady called Camilla Knight, who's an associate professor at Swansea University. And she came up and it's our first year of trying to embed these thoughts um, explicitly within planning. So in your session, you've got what the technical tactical areas you're working on, but what also are you embedding as a psychosocial so things like self-awareness or things like um dedicated to personal development so are you building time in your sessions for them to experience those and one of the bits of feedback was around that idea of peer-to-peer -peer support um 
as adults, we thought we cracked it because we encouraged them to set up their own social media group that doesn't have us in it, so they can talk about some stuff, and I probably don't want to know what goes on on that group either. Um, we've got a leadership group who kind of feed back to us from the players around, you know, are we hitting the kind of right levels in terms of progressions? Are we too slow? Are we too fast? Do some players feel isolated? That kind of thing. But that kind of concept, whether it's one-to-one or kind of a, as a small group that you guys have worked together this year and and get to know each other. Um, yeah, it's definitely something we want to explore, but we're, we're not there yet. Uh, well, at least, you know, you, you know, there's, there's different things to explore for the for the players yeah. um let's just take a break we'll come back in a minute and um we'll just dig a bit deeper yep okay in part two you will probably figure out that i've asked the question that i've cut the recording off so apologies for that and it relates to what happens next if they get the go ahead for the academy uh, from the powers that be so apologies for that um, I will make sure that I avoid editing and editing again uh, going forward what what happens then what do you want to do then okay what a, what a question that is um, kind of constant reflect on the kind of stuff that you're doing well and make sure that that stays in there but look at some of the some of the blind spots and and try and make those things a little bit better. It was interesting. I was over at, at Sale Sharks the other week and one of the benefits of us not having a professional club, by the way, is that everybody else is really open. They don't feel threatened yeah. by us. And just because <laughs> I think it's, it's always interesting when you speak to a player and, and when you drill into everything, the, the key to being either really, really successful and winning or, or just missing out tends to come down to some of the psychological stuff or mindset stuff. Um, you know, people talk about Tiger Woods on on Sunday when he's wearing his, his red polo shirt and he's he's in the mode, and uh, you know people think about that. And all of a sudden, the, the golfer's mindset's gone, and they go like Tiger's hunting us down. And it's just it's just real interesting that a professional rugby club have felt the value in. We need to provide this for our players. Times in the day where that they just need to to decompress a little bit and just spend 15, 20 minutes, whether it's working on some kind of circular breathing, if it's just working on letting things go, particularly if you've got a double day at a professional club and you've had a, a bad session and all of a sudden your mind starts racing around, I'm not going to get picked this week and and everything else. Or So I just, I, I think it's really cool um, that they're the only club that I know of, that there's probably some more out there doing things, but have been really kind of upfront and said, we're going to put this in place because we think it'll give us a, a an X factor compared to everybody else. In one of the previous episodes, I interviewed John Quinn, um, who was the mental skills coach for the Canterbury Crusaders in New Zealand. And he was saying that, you know, players at the professional level, they're all pretty skilled. They're all very, very similar, but it's that mindset around how they approach things throughout the week, you know, mm. and... I've, I've dabbled with some of the meditation stuff, so I kind of dip in and dip out of headspace a little bit. Um, but it's, I'm probably not committing enough time to be really deliberate about it. There'll just be some days where I go... Ooh, I feel a bit, I feel a yeah. bit uh, on edge. I've just had a pretty tough phone call, or that uh, <laughs> that parents wound me up a little bit, telling me that I've missed the next best thing. Um, but just just dialing in, and going ten minutes of just letting things go, and yeah. it's amazing. It's ridiculous. Like you say, slow down to go fast. You just come yeah. out of that and go right. I'm ready to go again now. So yeah, yeah. I think through the course that I'm doing, you know, we we get asked, "How's your being time?" and "How's your doing time?" So your being time is being present and, you know, you're yeah. doing, you're just, you're just, you're just doing stuff. And then, and a couple of weeks back, I was going, 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 going. And then I sort of had to stop myself to think I'm going at a million miles an hour and I'm achieving nothing. I sort yeah. of step right back, work through the issue, right. I know what I need to do now. And then everything just seemed to flow. And uh, it's like, yeah. I've got clarity, you know, and I'm doing a, I'm doing a load more stuff now and I'm not, not even thinking about it. It's a bit like, you know, when you're playing, you get that pass, you flick it on, it just goes exactly where you need, you know, in front of your, your supporting player or you kick that ball, it's gone 50, 60 metres. Didn't, you didn't even feel it coming off your boot, you know. And then other times it feels like you're kicking a brick. 
So yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting about the um, the being and doing. So uh, I met a guy. I was fortunate enough in, in my old job that my my line manager kind of put a real value on this kind of stuff, and we spent a weekend with a guy called Jamie Edwards who would crack it. Is he a life coach? I'm not sure what his role is. He's, he's certainly multifaceted, but he definitely spoke about that kind of being and doing um, and stuff. And, and he would, he broke it down in terms of bubbles and, and everybody's got this kind of like, you've got your work bubble, you've got um, your relationship bubble, which might be your wife, it might be your kids or whatever else. And then you've got this self bubble and you just need to be mindful that life throws stuff at you. So you might, your work bubble might be overinflated at a certain time. But you've got to kind of be really mindful of that and make sure like your self bubble doesn't disappear or, yeah. you know, having having been through uh, a divorce, there's obviously at times where the relationship bubble got a bit too small. I wasn't being being the husband. I was like kind of doing husband stuff by being there and going to the shops or whatever else. Yeah. Um, and it's just really interesting. So if you can kind of be preemptive and go, look, I know this next two weeks, the work bubble is going to be pretty big. Um and I'm, I'm going to try my best not to let it affect me, but once I get through it, let's let's plan something in, and and uh, I can I can be more in terms of self, or I can be more in terms of my relationship. So it's it's definitely something that uh, I, I took on board, and that idea of, of being present is uh, something that I try and do. Yeah, and you see the 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 guys with see so you watch TV, and you know the guys playing whatever sport it might be. You know, it could be baseball, it could be basketball, cricket rugby and you know your Brian Lawrence they've got all the time in the world and it's they look at the ball and then it's gone out of the park or your Johnny Wilkinson's you know just slotting it from from wherever yeah. um it's just being able to focus on what your task is at that at that present time you know a lot of people um think that meditation is it, it conjures up a, a load of different images but there's loads of different meditations there's a couple that I've been listening to recently and they're sort of, especially when I want to focus. And now that I've been doing it long enough, as soon as it turns on, bang, I'm there. Or there's one for sleep. As soon as it turns on, within out about two minutes, I'm gone. It's like, hey, that's great. Yeah. But we can it's, spend... It's cracking. Yeah. It's cracking, right? But you, you just, it's all these different frequencies and you kind of go, well, if I'm going to go into this this beta phase, that'll help me drift exactly. off to sleep. And then you've got the gamma waves. Like I've, I've been doing... Um, I've been doing my level four um, for what seems like a hundred years. Um, I started in that season where the pandemic hit yep. and then obviously fortunate enough to get the job of the academy and it kind of slipped off the radar, but they, um, they basically gave me the hard word and said, look, you've got to get it done. If you don't get it done by the end of this month, then you kind of, you're throwing your money down the drain essentially. So if I know I've got to spend a bit of time reading the paper or putting some thoughts down, straight in with the AirPods, get the gamma waves on. And, and like you say, once you get into it, whether whether it's psychosomatic or not, you just, your brain switches on and goes, right, we're concentrating now and we're going to yeah. do some good stuff or, right, we're ready to sleep now and it, it just works a bit quicker. And anyway, then, I know that we could go down a massive rabbit hole there. No, no, I think it's, it's a, so we go to the gym to, you know, get big. Yeah. You know, we, we get taught how to catch and how to pass the mental side of things will last you for life you're not going to be running around and kicking a ball you know when you're 85 years old or when you're 60 or when you're retired but you're still going to need to have this engaged and focused in everything that you do and that impacts your family your work life you know and whatever else you do in your social because we spend most time what are you doing in your downtime mate oh, just i've been on tiktok all that kind of stuff and your brain's just being overloaded with stuff all the time yeah it was interesting. I um, <clears throat> I started off with this this level four concept. I've actually done the paper on this kind of journey as an academy, but I, I did I started off by exploring the idea of resilience in team sports and yeah. kind of understanding what resilience was and wasn't. And I think you get this this idea that somebody overcomes either an injury, like we discussed previously about you know, overcome my Achilles injury and got back to playing, so therefore you're resilient. But I definitely it's not black and white. I wasn't yep. resilient when you know my dad passed away of a heart attack. That hit me pretty hard. So it's just this idea of you can't you can't just put a label on things. Say, oh yeah, Craig's pretty resilient. He yeah. uh, he did this, he did that. And, but just kind of, and that's definitely one thing we try to support the players with is is kind of managing emotion. Um, and if we can give them some principles of how to do that on pitch, 
they might be able to then link some of that. You know, I'm feeling pretty stressed around my exams. So yep. kind of what are the bits you can control? Well, you can control putting the required effort into study and, and doing some revision. You can't control what the actual question is on the paper. Exactly. So if you've given yourself the best opportunity, um, just like you can't control what the referee sees and how he blows yeah. his whistle. But uh, so yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it all. It's um, yeah, it's you can, not bogged down. You, you can you can control your technique, your tackle technique, or your run catch pass. You know, the same way you can control the way that you approach your studies, your revision, and being prepared. You know, so you're going to go into a game, you're going to do some work on being prepared around what you need to do for the next week. Maybe the opposition are a bit different. You've looked at a few video clips or you've played them previously if you're at an amateur club and you you know what kind of a game plan they're going to be doing. So you sort of prepare. So the, the principles around sort of being resilient can be whatever you want it to be, but it's around giving you the opportunity to be prepared for whatever's going to happen as best you can then you know, there's referee, there's the weather, you know, you get stuck on. And those what-if scenarios are sort of things that you can cover off as well. The, I sent the guys a message. No, I think it was our last game. It was after our, it was before our last game of the season. It was a training on the Thursday night. I said, what if he gets, as one of the guys playing hooker, what if we lose him? You know, he has to come off because either he's got a card or he's injured and we don't have a backup. What if then? And they sort of said, well, I said, well, you know, think about it. And then the Chiefs played, I can't remember who it was on the Saturday, and that exact scenario happened. I sent them a message on the group chat. I said, you know what we'd spoke about on Thursday? It's just happened to these guys. So that's why yeah. you cover off those, you know, what if scenarios, because it just keeps you prepared. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I was working with a coach. I was mentoring through his, his level three recently, and... Um, we discussed kind of bringing these scenario bits in into training. So he'd um, he'd done a, a bit of a session with the lads where I think they were defending a tight lead. He said, "Well, like we're two points up, the three minutes left. We've got the ball just in their half. Kind of how we're going to manage the situation." And he said it panned out that that weekend that exact kind of situation came up. They were sort of defending, and he said he could hear the players going, "This is whatever they'd called it." Um, so it's really interesting. My, I guess my question at the moment would be. Um, and I know it's been asked on social media. Are there, are there coaches currently doing the what if we get a high tackle card or what if we get a high tackle red card rather than trying to fix the factors that would mitigate against them actually getting the card in the first place? Yeah, so I think that's really... What if yeah. we don't hit them in the head? <laughs> yeah, and there's uh, we've all got opinions around the way that they're sort of officiating that area at the moment. And it, you know what the outcome is if you go high. And it's just again going back to your basics, going back to your skill set. You can't you can't account for a lad coming around the corner with a ball as they drop and you're in a position to take them in a normal tackle and you're sort of half committed, you know, guys can't half commit in rugby. Um, but it's just understanding, you know, if that happens, you know, how do we deal with that? And it's it's weird that club rugby don't adopt the twenty minute red card rule. Um, well, we don't in the division that we do. Is it from United Rugby Championship and lower that they don't? I'm not sure. I think at the moment, is it just um, is it just a trial in the uh, Super Rugby Pacific stuff? Because it's, it's certainly not happening in in any of the Prem games or anything. There's no kind of 20 minute red card. It's it's kind of red or yellow. Um, I don't know because it. I mean. It, you would think if they're going to trial it, they've done it for at least two seasons now. Get it done, mm. get it out there. Because yeah. if it's going to work, it's going to work. If it isn't, it isn't. And sort of let's just be clear about, you know, what's going on. I mean, there's always going to be kind of unintended consequences about stuff. Yeah. Um, so I remember in the kind of last season of, of Carnegie, they the trialed the kind of armpit height tackle in, in the Championship Cup. And it was only brought in for that standalone competition. And then they saw like a massive spike in people picking up concussions. And it was mainly the tackler because they were dropping to a height they weren't used to and yeah. getting hit by knees, hit by hips or elbows. Yeah. Um, so in the end, they kind of did away with the rules. It was brought in for the right intentions, but the unintended consequences were tacklers were used to doing a certain action all the way through. And then in this four-week block, I've, I've got to reduce by five or six inches. And yeah. 
you know, my body's not used to it and then you end up being not in the right position. So it's a, it's a real interesting flux at the moment. I think all the laws are there for the right reasons. And I think there is a level of consistency now where they're kind of going, this is where we're starting. It's a red offence because of the force. Yep. Is it mitigated by player height, etc.? So there's a consistency there. But at, at what point do they kind of go, enough's enough and I'm going to change the laws again? And then you kind of go through the rigmarole or where do they go? Let's just stick with it. And if the 20-minute yeah. red card is the best way to, to do that so it doesn't massively influence games, then maybe that's right. But then do people then gamble and go, well, I'm only going to get 20 minutes and I could probably take their 10 out for the entire match if I... Uh... Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying people would coach that, but there's always yeah. a kind of unintended consequence. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of the Rugby Academy, so Yorkshire's a massive you know, county. You've got Doncaster Knights, you've got Rotherham. Um, is there room for another professional club like we had with Carnegie? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, and first first and foremost, like thankfully Leeds Tykes as they are now managed to stay in National One. I think that was that was massive for the county because you've got Doncaster kind of up there and, and just missing out on winning the league in the championship. Um and then Leeds staying in in the third tier was was key and they're going to be joined by Hull now. So we've got this pathway through the county of, of clubs that are, can provide opportunities for you know players at different levels. Um, I guess my own personal opinion was the, the kind of the Yorkshire branding was a little bit misguided because we are quite insular in, in the county. Yeah. We're kind of quite proud of representing our town, representing um, our people. So the, you know, the, the kind of Leeds Tykes brand probably, would be stronger than saying Yorkshire Tykes, for example. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's it's really difficult to to see there being a need for a second club when you look around the country and you know there's there's no other examples of it apart from maybe London yeah. and the Southwest where if you get it right and people get behind the regional side, you know Doncaster Knights, a great facility. They've been professional for a long time, so they would be probably. The best place to do that but at the end of the day we know that they've got the struggles with with the infrastructure so how realistic that is right now i'm not sure um leeds would probably have ambition to to get back up to that kind of level but it just takes a fairly significant investment both in terms of actual money but also resource and and get people there and i think that's probably where you could go back and probably pinpoint when Leeds Tykes, as they were then, tried to take the next step from being a kind of bottom-end premiership club to, to maybe replicating what Exeter have done recently. Um, but they had to invest significantly. And if you don't get that investment right with the personnel, that can actually be counterproductive. And I think some of the people they brought in, there were massive names at the time, and they probably commanded a massive salary, but actually weren't right for, for the club. Um, and they kind of went down, bobbled back up. And then, yeah, once you're not, you know, what's the saying? If you're not moving forward, then you're going backwards. And I think that probably applied when they're in the championship and kind of tried to tighten the belts a little bit and sort of stood still. And then ultimately you end up, like I say, going backwards. So they are, they are where they are now. So not much of an answer. But I would think probably Doncaster Knights, if, if we could get them, um, whatever the competition looks like, as a professional club, I think the county would be behind them because they're representing Doncaster in terms of the town and the people, but people could get behind that idea of they're flying the flag for the county and they're not being presumptuous that they are Yorkshire. They're kind of, we're Doncaster and we're proud, but we're doing this on your behalf as well. So, Brilliant. Sorry, a ramble. No, 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 that, that's fine. That's fine. Let's, let's just have a chat about um, club rugby then because I know in some of the lower divisions and well, all through, you know, clubs have really struggled over the last couple of years. Um, what's your take on things that's going on at grassroots level? Yeah, well, it, it's certainly pretty tough. The most local club to me have, have really struggled this year to, to get like teams out week to week to, um, to get 15 players on the pitch. I think there's probably um, a couple of different different ways in which clubs have, have done well. So there's, there's certainly, obviously, the, the easy one where they, they might have a resource to, 
to look after players either financially or or whatever else to make their offer attractive. Then you've got these clubs who, through the pandemic, worked really hard to stay connected to the players um, and and looked at what they were offering and tried to enhance it. So I'll give a great example of, of Keithley Rugby Club, who through that time spent spent a lot of time and probably money investing in in the changing room when you walk in the first team changing room at Keithland, it's absolutely outstanding. You kind of go, and I wouldn't mind being here every other week getting changed in this. It's yeah. similar to a lot of professional clubs in, in the way it looks. Um, and they're putting three teams out regularly. So they've obviously done something right in terms of connecting with the, the people around them and, and making their offer as good as it can be. And then you've got other clubs who perhaps worried more financially about the, the state of the clubhouse and what that looked like and, got stuck into getting grants and stuff to keep a roof over their heads and probably didn't keep the connection with the players and then just assumed that players would come back and and play um, and they found that it's more difficult than that. So it's uh, it's really interesting. I'm not sure what what the kind of RFU thoughts are on it. I know that the league restructure may help in terms of it being more local and that would be a real key driver in terms of players' motivations that, you know, if you need to jump on a bus every other week for two or three hours to the end of the country, it, puts a lot of strain on, particularly work Work these days is seven days a week. It's not Monday to Friday, nine to five. You know, the, the family stuff is is miles more important. And you, you get the old committee men saying, oh, we never went to weddings in my time, in my day. We played 60 games a year and I never missed. And, and it's like, <laughs> trying to get them to understand that that life is different and motivations are different is, is pretty key. I think um, yeah. the clubs that do it well have people on those committees who can resonate with today's player and it's not just a bygone era we've moved on from sort of playing 500 games a year and you know you never yeah. you never go out you never you never see the family it's uh you know we've got guys who are self-employed you've got a lot more people are self-employed you've got families that have blended families broken you know broken relationship yeah. at the start of the season you'd have it was like a crash upstairs on a saturday you know, there yeah. are just kids running around all over the place, which is great because that's what rugby is all about. It's about family. It's about inclusiveness. Um, yeah. so it's just a matter of some some opinions need to sort of catch up with what's happening in reality. How are things going? In, that's, sorry, that's, you sorry. Go. there you go. I was going to say it's kind of key for the clubs to understand that they might not actually have less players, but it, it just takes more players to service fewer teams. So in the days gone by, they might have had four teams and... Uh, but nowadays, it you know, most clubs are looking at using 45, 50 players just for the first team over the course of the year, based on all those bits you mentioned. Um, so that does have a knock-on effect. You don't have your kind of social thirds out as often. Yeah. Um, but just be mindful, you need to stay connected to those players that do want to play once a month. And, and how do you offer them something rather than going, well, we can't get 15 out for the third team, so we'll just scrap it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting moving forward. Um, I, I think the uh, RFU initiative around game on with yeah. right, we've got eleven players. We'll go and play with eleven. I know, I know teams that have done that, and then Leah saying, "Look, we've got eight. How many of you guys got? Well, we've got twenty-four. Okay, we'll come here. You know, want to mix and match? Yeah, we'll do that just to get the game on. The guys appreciate it. The clubs appreciate it. You yeah. know, because else there'd be thirty odd guys that weren't playing any rugby at all. And then yeah. 100%. Yeah, and then, you know, you do that a couple of weeks in a row of not playing because you've only got seven, and then guys are going, well, it's not worth it. Yeah, exactly. That seven becomes three. And Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Money. What are your opinions on money in club rugby being played to players? Yeah. I think um, I've, I've got my own philosophies. And listen, I don't, I don't mind if, if clubs make that decision, and that's... That's their um, viewpoint. If you want to pay a few players and, and that's what you do, then then good luck to you. I just think it can can be a bit short-termist. And I'd, I'd rather sort of say, look, if, if you're spending that money more on, on your offer, so spend the money on the changing rooms, spend the money on, you know, making your clubhouse family-friendly, that kind of thing. So rather than having 50 black and white pictures of stuff that people have no idea about, make your Wi-Fi good, make the seats comfy so that the missus might come down with the kids and, and go, actually, I don't mind you being out for three hours now because I go down and I have a good natter with stuff. So I think there's better ways of spending money than just giving somebody 50 quid because somebody then comes along and says, well, we'll give you 60 quid and that player goes. So, yeah. it's, so if you want to do it, that's absolutely fine. I've got no issue with it. 
be be open and honest about it. Don't you know? Don't kind of hide behind the fact that um, what's the phrase? The club don't pay the players. You know, there's something with a brown envelope in the corner of the clubhouse. Like, come on, like we're beyond that. Just be open and honest. Go look. It is what it is. You either do or you don't. Just exactly. You know, fess up. Um, So yeah, but I think that um, I think the further up you go, I think we're we're probably at, at that kind of real tipping point as to clubs in national one, you know, some of them are spending close to a million quid, you know, chasing a one spot to get promoted to the championship. And then that just escalates up You're in the championship and Crikey Ealing must have spent, you know, several million pounds on their squad over the last few years to essentially be told because their stadium's not right that they can't go in. Um, exactly. So at some point there has to be a kind of, this is what the model looks like. We're only going to support a number of professional teams yeah. and invest that money in your infrastructure. And, and you know what, if lower down the leagues, they keep on doing it, then, then good luck to them. And just be mindful that Craig Bartlett's going to give you a season here, but he knows next year that they're going to give him 20 quid more. And, you know, that's, it's always been the same, let's be honest, even in the days of boot money and traveling expenses, yeah. it's always been around. So. Tell you what, you make a good point around investing in the club and, you know, use KC as the example, invest in your infrastructure. And then the, the opposite happened, you know, further up and uh, it's the reason why they've missed out on, on gaining promotion, which is yeah. which is, which is is sad, really, because they've earned the right. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's just understanding what the, uh, the lay of the land is. In terms of um, schools rugby, how was that developing? Yeah, it's, um, it's a real, real interesting one because, I mean, that's changed significantly over the years. And um, like I say, I remember back in my day, my day was pretty 30 years ago nearly now, but there was state schools did play Saturday morning rugby against local teams. So I remember playing for Bingley Grammar against Ermysteads, um, you know, those kind of guys. Whereas nowadays that that's kind of not happening. Yeah, There's not yeah. so many state schools that are playing the Saturday, but what... what um, Locally, kind of what White Rose would be doing in terms of supporting the schools and running that event, it's actually thriving. It, it, it's maybe not as regular, so they won't play 12, 15 fixtures, but they might kind of go, once a month we've got a festival and we're going to play a triangular. So Skipton Rugby Club hosts, you know, a few schools and they go along. Um, so I think there's lots of schools playing rugby. The model's just different to how it once was. Um, and that's just reflective that the staff have got so much pressure on. Yeah, exactly. Um, but... You know, the big schools are investing even more year on year. So, you know, it's a different world. The, the likes of Sedbur, Wellington College, Millfield, yeah. paying massive money for specialist staff, investing in professional style gyms. You know, um, I know I know. Kieran went to QE. You look at the facility there and it's just, it's different Crazy. world. Yeah. Um, it's, better, it's better than some professional clubs. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's... And that's great. Um, but then the reality bites when the kids leave and they come back to play for the club and, and all of a sudden it's it's a bit more spit and sawdust. And, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that's, that's a difficult thing. Like, yeah. And that's what I, what I spoke about before, about getting your offer right, yep. that um, they want to feel part and connected to that club. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Look, uh, I think our time's up here. Um, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out to speak to me today and sharing your wisdom around sort of how people can and the players are dealing with uh, things on a day-to-day basis in the academy and around around the um around the county um in terms of sort of one one parting thought what would you be uh sort of recommendation for a young player coming through well i thought you've left this with two minutes left on the clock um <laughs> so i think i think um just just being mindful of there's there's so much more to it than rugby and like I'd, I'd never want to stop anybody chasing the dreams and, and the passion but like the reality is there's there's only a certain number of spots available um so don't kind of put all your eggs in one basket explore other stuff um there's the book by uh, epstein about range and this whole idea that the guys who do make it to the top have experienced so much more in their their childhood so like federer played loads of other sports and not everybody's like the williams sisters who just did tennis from three years old and yeah. so just just enjoy stuff like there's nothing wrong with with giving everything your best but at the same time don't don't just narrow your focus too early 
Yeah, I was listening to an interview with the Barrett brothers and like Geordie uh, was about to play cricket for Central Districts when he started playing rugby and yeah. the other lads play golf and, you know, well, they can play everything, whatever. Yeah. I think they're just one of those blessed families. But yeah, true, uh, a really good rounded person makes a really good rounded player. And, um, you know, the skills that you learn in rugby uh, will last you a lifetime. So, Absolutely. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate it. Um, thank you very much for um, coming on the 2022 and 2022 Challenge podcast. Um, and I may actually give you a call um, at the start of next season and, uh, you know, or later in the year. We'll, we'll go from there and have another catch up, see how things are progressing. No, brilliant. And, uh, mate, keep doing this. It's, it's outstanding. I love what you're doing. So uh, look thank forward you. to catching up again soon. Cheers, Dicko. Take care. No worries. Cheers, Greg. Have a Bye good now. one. Bye. Thanks for listening in today. I really enjoyed the conversation with Stuart. Thought the update on the Yorkshire Rugby Academy was really intriguing and to understand a bit further around elite rugby and the pathways for younger players. Really good to have a conversation around club rugby as well and what's going on there. And I will touch base with Stuart before the new season starts to understand where they are at. Love the, love the concept of the mind gym that they are working on at South Sharks. I'd probably, I'll try and get in contact with Jamie Langley to have a conversation with him and delve a bit deeper into the topic. Um, but for now, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, comment, provide feedback. Uh, but more importantly, from my point of view, I'd really appreciate if you could donate to help me achieve the goal of 2000 pounds during the year so from me to you thanks a lot uh, i'll sign off now my name's craig bartlett and i'm really proud to be bringing you the 2022 and 2022 challenge podcast